You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to episode 121 of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. On this episode, we sat down with Brian Oliveda. Brian formerly owned Gerard Brasserie and Bruncherie, Philly's first fair wage restaurant. Brian currently owns Happy Hour Hospitality and Cuisinha Philly. Cuisinha Philly is a pop-up Portuguese restaurant experience that pops up all over and around the city of Philadelphia. Follow at Cuisinha, C-O-Z-I-N-H-A, Philly on Instagram to see where their next pop-up is going to be happening. Happy Hour Hospitality is a creative culinary concept founded by Brian along with his partner, Brian Matera. Brian's here with us today to talk about all things restaurant and hospitality industry. In particular, we're going to be discussing how he developed Happy Hour Hospitality along with the pop-up concept Cuisinha and how Brian survived the pandemic. Brian's also here to talk about fair wages for restaurant workers and why we should continue to do our part in tipping those restaurant workers as best we can every time we go out to a restaurant. Here are the self-made strategies of Brian Oliveira. Excited to do this discussion with you and to uh, to talk about happy hour hospitality and then Cuisinha Philly. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah awesome. Thanks. So walk us through how you started happy hour hospitality to begin with. Yeah, uh, we started uh, in October of 2018. And I say we, that's uh, my partner, also named Brian and I. Uh, and it it was born out of uh, a, a change that I needed from the, the grind of the restaurant industry and that like seven day a week, nonstop uh, to something that gave us the ability to have quality of life and uh, still have a sustainable business. And um, really, uh, it, it kind of just snowballed from some small events that we were doing for friends and family. That kind of word of mouth uh, got us to where we are now. Yeah, that's really cool. And so you do a lot of catering if people want catered meals. You'll also cater parties, of course. You'll cater events. How does that all work if somebody wants to, you know, book happy hour hospitality to come in and cook a meal for them or cook a meal for them and a few friends? We're still in the pandemic, so you can't have a huge event yeah, indoors yeah. at least. Uh, we definitely specialize in, uh, I would say, smaller events. So uh, we love doing the private dinners. That's uh, in-home private dining. Uh, you know, you get a, a, a custom tasting menu suited to your likes and, and, uh, you know, favorite dishes. And then on the other side, we do, you know, parties, uh, we've done weddings, showers, those types of tradition, more traditional events. Um, and it, it's kind of a mix of, you know, we're chefs for hire. So, uh, we have what we specialize in, but, uh, let us know what you need. We love working with, you know, uh, repeat clients. So, you kind of build a relationship and then, um, you know, it's quite fun. Yeah, that's cool. Okay. So let's talk about the actual start of the business though. You started the business back in 2018, right? Yes. Why, why did you get into happy hour hospitality and what was going on in your life at that time that kind of led to the creation of happy hour hospitality? Uh, I had, uh, just recently sold a restaurant 
Gerard that I had uh, been running for almost five years. And we opened when I was 23. Uh, or, yeah, I was 23. And uh, I was just really burnt out from that nonstop. I was working 80, 90 hours a week. And it was just too much uh, for me personally. And I took some time off and we need, you know, I was starting to get the itch to get back to work. And, you know, this kind of, like I said, we, we started doing stuff for friends and family and we had kind of just talked about it before we knew it. We had an LLC set up and we were licensed and insured and, uh, then we just started, you know, really throwing ourselves into that. Had to keep a part-time job for the first year or so, but a um, year and a half ago now, we both went full-time, jumped right into happy hour and have uh, been pushing that since. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So you were side hustling in the beginning to kind of get this thing off the ground, which by the way, I, I couldn't agree more with in terms of a great method and recipe for success for anyone who's starting a business or venturing off into you know, kind of chasing their dream, if you will. And did you find that that was a good way to kind of bridge the gap between owning your own restaurant and then shifting into this more pop-up style, catering style? Definitely. I think uh, two things. I I think the industry is shifting in uh, just how how businesses are reaching people and the platforms they use. Uh, from brick and mortar to the more, you know, food being brought to you, whether it's delivery or in-home private dining, uh, all online stuff now. So that's shifted. But also, um, I learned from opening the restaurant, I had a business partner who uh, was much older than me, and I kind of trusted him to guide me in a lot of ways. And we went the route of do it all from the beginning, make it the best and, and start off with everything. And, uh, it was kind of, it was, it was a lot to, to, to keep that up. And I learned, you know, it would have been much more beneficial for us to start small with these pop-ups say, and build a little bit more of a following, get a footing, understand the lay of the land and what we're getting into and then organically grow from there, which was what we were able to do with happy hour. And it, it, you know, because we did it that way, we only had to put money out when we knew money was coming in and it allowed us to build up uh, more of a sustainable foundation and now, you know, we're able to branch off like we have with Cozinha for a passion project. And it's allowing us to um, to do the things that, you know, owning your own business uh, allows you to do. Right. You have a little bit more sense of an autonomy. You can make decisions more in the moment. And I love the way that you pointed out the fact that you can bootstrap until you have revenue coming in, right? You can wait to outlay cash. And especially... In, in a world where, especially in the restaurant space, right, there's a lot of waste, food waste, a lot of food oh, yeah. waste. And yeah. this model allows you to shift into more of a sustainable perspective, mm-hmm. which is A, good for the environment and overall in general, just to limit food waste, but also a great method to bootstrap your business so that you can get up to a really successful point. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, we were only buying food if we knew we had a job. When I had the restaurant, I had to guess how many people right. are going to walk through the door and have of an array of items available to them day after day. Um, and, and, you know, even, even the busiest restaurants have tons of food waste. So it's, it is kind of just part of the model when you want to please everybody and have the consistency that a restaurant requires. Um, so, uh, that, that definitely helped. And also, you know, in a way, uh, over the last year with COVID, the, uh, kind of being able to experiment allowed us to do more, more things that we might not have been able to try a year ago, but everyone was a lot more understanding with, and just more flexible because every business had a different policy and way of doing things and everything was switching. So that allowed us to kind of toy around with a couple of different things that have now transformed into a legitimate branch of our uh, business and an added revenue stream uh, beyond the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. So what was the big difference maker to go from, you know, sort of side hustle slash, you know, even when you were full-time, as you said, in your first year, you were kind of going gig to gig, so to speak, for lack of a better term, waiting for the revenue to come in, for the orders to come in to then buy your supply and stuff. What was the big shift that enabled you to finally quit the additional job that you were doing to focus solely on happy hour hospitality? Uh, it was when we were you know, getting just busy enough that I still had the part-time job which was at the time uh, quite demanding and happy hour was starting to, I wouldn't say suffer, but there were things that I wasn't able to necessarily focus on as much. And I had to make a decision, you know, do I want to keep, you know, working 50, 60 hours a week to make someone else money or do I want to take all this time that I'm putting into, into this job and just transfer it over to happy hour. And it was a risk. And, you know, it, there was a period of time where, uh, you have to cut back on, you know, some of the things you might be used to, but we ultimately it was worth taking the, the, the leap and, um, taking all that energy and focusing it on our own business, which, you know, in no time at all, it really, um, paid off. Uh, and, and it, it just opened up, um, a lot more creativity and motivation and, uh, was all around great for the business. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. I personally, and, and you let me know if you agree with this or disagree with this. I, I think that when people say there's a lot of risk in entrepreneurial endeavors, and of course there's risk, but there's risk in everything that you do. And I actually think that it's riskier to be dependent on your, you know, nine to five, whatever, sure. working for somebody else, W2 gig. Cause let's face it, quite frankly, any day, any Friday, you could be handed a banker's box and say, thank you for your contributions. It's been awesome having you around, but we're going to end this here. Put all your collectibles in here and we'll mail you anything else you have left over. There's no two weeks notice. There's no, you know, maybe you see it coming, maybe, yeah, but there's no, yeah. especially with the pandemic, furloughs and, and um, job security has seen a, a significant shift. 
Now, have you found that you've found a sense of more, you spoke about autonomy a little bit in passing. Have you found that you're better off now in the position that you're in, or do you still feel like there's a risky sort of nature to it on a day to day? Uh, I, I feel, uh, I feel great about where we're at and, um, you know, there's, like you said, there's a risk with everything that you do. And, uh, to me, I, I do feel that it's, uh, it's all totally worth it when you have that autonomy and it, I, I am looking beyond where I am now and the potential, that if I stick with this, where we could end up, um, and you can surely you can you know advance and grow in uh, a nine to five or a corporate or working for someone else, but um, you know having the the flexibility to have these different interests and you know we have the side project we're working on launching another brand and it it is just so much more fun and for, for me to keep myself kind of entertained and burn off all this energy. It's great to have all those different outlets that we can, you know, switch things up. And this one's a little more relaxed and fun. And this one, we get to really get in on the details and, um, you know, so it's different mindsets that keeps it interesting and keeps us moving. Yeah. Exactly. That's awesome. All right, let's shift to Cozinha Philly, which by the way, you know, I, I am a, a Portuguese American. I was born here, but my parents are from Portugal. And so on occasion, you know, people ask where where's a good place to get Portuguese food. And up until you opened Cozinha, and you saw me post about this on Instagram the other yeah. day. Um uh, sadly, the Philly area just does not have great Portuguese food until now. Um so Glad to have you aboard. I was lucky enough to experience your Portuguese cuisine before you even opened Cozinha Philly when it was more of just a concept when you did the pop-up. Now, I forget what the kitchen was called. You'll you'll remind me what the kitchen was called in Northern Liberties, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Uh, Liberty Kitchen. Liberty Kitchen, yeah. which was was awesome. We we went down into the basement. You, Brian and Brian were cooking and serving that night. And Portuguese cuisine that I have to say... I've had good Portuguese cuisine stateside. In Newark, you can usually find pretty good Portuguese yeah. restaurants. And uh, there used to be a place called Cusido in Philly on 2nd Street, which was also very, very good in my opinion. But I have yet, until I ate at Liberty Kitchen your food, I had yet to experience really authentic tasting Portuguese food. Unbelievable. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> and well, I'd love to be able to much. duplicate thank that you. at home, but uh, but I have yet to uh, yet to get to that level. So you're crushing it. I, I love 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 your Portuguese cuisine, and the pictures of the pastéis nata that you post on Instagram are just mouth. My mouth is watering thinking about them right now oh, on this episode. So uh, everyone who's listening to this, go follow Cozinha Philly C O Z I N H A Philly. Uh, on Instagram, and you'll see lots of really delicious and amazing Portuguese food. But so tell us how you spun up that concept, how the idea came about. Yeah, we, uh, so we were doing pop-ups through happy hour just to, you know, like we were talking about to have that more fun, creative outlet and mm -hmm. more relaxed environment. And, uh, we at first were kind of going with different themes and I too am Portuguese American. Uh, my dad is, uh, was actually born in Mozambique, 
but my grandparents were just living there at the time. They went back to Portugal before moving to the States. And, uh, I, you know, I grew up, my grandparents still live in the Ironbound section in Newark. And I just grew up, my grandmother's an amazing cook, eating that food in, from all the churrasqueiras in Newark. And it's just so good. Uh, so I always had this itch to do that and bring that to our pop-ups. And when we finally did, in four hours, the tickets sold out for the day. And we ended up adding a second day. And it had never happened. You know, It was always handful of friends, couple of people we know, and we'd be thrilled if we got like one or two people we didn't know. And uh, we sold out two days with the Portuguese food right away. And we were like, all right, we got to do this again. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it was great to see and meet people like you. And we had a bunch of other Portuguese families come out and being able to share the food and just feel like you were, you know, at my grandmother's table, just eating and having wine with everybody. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. So we wanted to, to keep that alive. And through, uh, the pandemic, we had the opportunity to do some pop-ups or kind of like takeout only. And, you know, uh, it, well, actually let me backtrack. I'm sorry. Before the pandemic, we were going to launch Cozinha and then mm -hmm. COVID hit and we were like, uh, now's not the time to to launch a, a another food business. So right. uh, kind of went on the back burner, a year went by, and then we had an opportunity to do um, a pop-up and we were like, all right, what are we going to do? And uh, we were like, well, we already know the Portuguese food is great and and people respond to it really well. So right now let's do what's working. And it just led to one after another. And we, you know, branded it off and, and had the, the logo made. And now it's its own thing that we can really focus on and define and grow. Um, for now, it's just uh, pop-ups and travel, like a traveling kitchen. Uh, we do have you know, bigger plans for that. But, uh, again, we're going to kind of let it organically grow into what works best for it and, and the times. That's pretty cool. So you're not doing any catering with respect to Cuisinha per se, but will happy hour technically, how, how does the catering for happy hour kind of overlap with that? Will you do Portuguese catering sure. if somebody wanted it? Yeah, most all of our menus that we do now are very like Mediterranean and Iberian influenced as it stands. So uh, there's always Portuguese dishes on the menus. And of course, if someone, you know, reaches out and is like, I want a bunch of pastiche for my wedding, we'll make it happen. Um, we're working on, we don't want to formalize too much. Uh, too soon uh, with the catering for Cuisinha. So mm -hmm. uh, that is going to be a phase that, you know, once we're comfortable with, we'll add on fully, but um, it's on a case by case basis. And we, you know, definitely offer uh, plenty of Portuguese options on our happy hour menus. Awesome.
Now, what are you finding being the biggest struggle aside from the pandemic, which I'm sure, you know, running a hospitality or food business in general during the pandemic is no easy feat. And we'll get to how you've overcome and been able to sustain sort of your, at least the lifestyle you're accustomed to, right? What during the pandemic, but what have you found to be the biggest hurdle in kind of launching your business and getting it to grow? It's kind of been defining not not who we are, but like the direct the direction because uh, a we started so, like we were so young at the start of COVID, but um, you know finding that balance between the things that we really want to do and the things that are going to make us money or that everyone else is asking for and, and really finding the balance to, to be able to say, these are the things we do really well. And that's what we want to present to people. Um, and being able to uh, kind of build our business up to the point where we, not that we are, that we want to say no to jobs, but we're able to get these jobs that are more in line with, you know, our goals and where we want to be and kind of, you know, really honing in on where we want to be and, and getting there because there is, you know, so much of getting the business off the ground is like saying yes, yes, yes. And um, it, it's definitely tough when, when you're in that position to cover, you know, you're covering all your costs, you're charging enough. You don't want, you don't want to, you know, as a new business, I think it's hard because people know you're a new business and they know right. you're young and just starting off. So they, you know, it's almost like they, they expect you to charge less. And, you know, we are really going for uh, very local, high quality ingredients and, and we really take our time. So we're going for like a, a much higher end product, but we kind of get pigeonholed into this idea um, that we're like young and new. Right. So it's hard, it's hard to charge what you really need to. And then you, it kind of becomes a cycle if you have repeat clients like we do, where you have to build up kind of your pricing to where you need to be. Um, so I guess it, it's kind of a two-sided answer. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm rambling. No, no, but. that's okay. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, so, so you're a big proponent of uh, fair wages and talking a lot about front of the house and back of the house disparities in the restaurant industry in general. So let's talk about that a little bit before we shift back to discussing survival mode in the pandemic, of course. Yes. Um, so what are the major issues in the industry? And we saw a lot of that pop up during the pandemic when you know uh, restaurant workers, unfortunately, were, were very sidelined, um, very, uh, you know, put through their paces here with the pandemic and having lots of issues because of these disparities. So what are some of the disparities and the issues that are prevalent in the restaurant world that people may not be aware of? Uh, well, certainly I would say, uh, the biggest one that people are probably, uh, is definitely come more into the forefront is the minimum wage surrounding tipped workers. Um, obviously just wages in general 
in the industry are typically, you know, a little lower or you have a lot of uh, what would be considered entry level or uh, non-skilled jobs that um, unfortunately pay, uh, you know, well below $15 an hour, uh, which would is not the minimum wage, but I would say uh, considered to be, you know, the new standard of where uh, places are moving towards with policy and everything. So um, the the pandemic has really shifted that because people aren't haven't been sitting down dining and tipping as much. So right. this disparity in wages has really become so prevalent and pronounced now with a microscope over it uh, when you don't have those tips to really subsidize your labor costs. And uh, businesses, some are doing uh, a, a really good job at it. Others are scrambling to figure out how do we rework our pay structure to pay these people fairly to cover our costs? Because in order to really pay them fairly, going from two thirteen or two eighty three an hour right. up to ten twelve dollars an hour uh, when you're at reduced capacity, that is definitely probably the biggest struggle right now, and. Um, finding the balance for uh, employees who are coming off of unemployment and making, you know, more than that two thirteen an hour and struggling to find some, like I said, some businesses are paying and others um, are, are still trying to navigate that. Um, but it's definitely very difficult for, um, for the tipped employees. Um, to navigate how to make ends meet with, right, you right. know, uh, the, the reduced capacity, all, all of it, uh, combined is just, uh, terrible for everyone. Yeah, that's true. And there are a lot of people that have been vocal, like Nicole Marquis of hip city veg has been pretty vocal about being very restaurant worker friendly and bringing a lot of those issues to the table. So I appreciate that you're bringing that up. What do you personally think would be a better system though? Would would it be better to shift to a more European model where uh, restaurant workers, wait staff, et cetera, is being paid a, a specific wage like a minimum wage, but reduce the amount that they're being tipped? Or do you think that we should shift to a $15 an hour system and continue the tip structure because quite frankly i mean you know i i i think a lot of people and and maybe people who listen to this those of you out there who are listening right now or watching on youtube maybe you've been in the restaurant industry i think a lot of us came up in the restaurant industry to some degree i worked as a bartender for many years and then uh after that managed a bar slash restaurant, a Portuguese bar slash restaurant, no surprises there, in Northeast Philly. And, you know, often um, I was I was fortunate that I made a good amount in tips, but made either none or the 283 or 213 or whatever it was that was basically wasn't worth the check that it was written on, pretty much. Um, so so what do you think is is a better system, a better solution to all of this? Is it better to do a minimum wage system and to cut back on the expected gratuity? 
And we'll get into, and I'd love to get your opinion on on the expectation of gratuity. Uh, I I generally speaking, we'll get into this a little bit more. I I generally speaking, find myself to be a fairly good tipper. Maybe you can be the judge of that. We'll talk about that. Uh, I've been tipping a bit heavier since the inception of the pandemic and throughout the pandemic. Unfortunately, I haven't eaten out a lot because of the pandemic. But um, but when I do, even if I'm just picking up food, I try to tip fairly well. But let's let's talk about what you think, first of all, would be a better solution to the to the problem that we're facing. Uh, so I think it's definitely going to be a little different for each business. Um, but I think we like almost every other industry that exists, uh, employers should be responsible for paying their employees a fair wage. And if, you know, if staples and the supermarket and your doctor's office and all these other people can factor their pricing so all their rent and and cost of goods and marketing and insurance is all covered then there's no reason the restaurant industry can't figure it out um i think it's very easy for servers and bartenders to remember the shifts they walked away with two and three hundred dollars in their pocket um but I, I remember all the shifts I walked away where there was instances where I owed the restaurant money because I had one table who stiffed me at lunch. And that was the only table in my section. And I had to tip out my support staff off of money that I never received. And that's happened more than once or nights where you leave with 15, $20 and you were there right. for six hours. Right. Um, so that all factors in. And when you average it out, the wages are lower than you think. Um, and doubly there's, you know, the majority of the workforce is not working in a restaurant that's raking in those kind of tips. You know, the people working at the chains and, uh, you know, especially places not serving alcohol are averaging $9 an hour with their tips. And that's, you know, no one can live off of that. Um, it's, it's 10% of the workforce in the United States makes up this sector and 70% of those jobs are at or below the poverty line and 70% are about uh, of those below the poverty line are single mothers. It, it's just, it's a, it's a very, uh, complex thing that isn't just going to be fixed with one thing, but I think restaurant owners and managers need to take more responsibility in raising the wages and educating the customer as to the true cost of what it is to go out to eat. It is a luxury. It is a service, a convenience. And, you know, if you look at the price of, say, a chicken entree from the 80s and 90s till now, there's a couple dollars difference, maybe. That, that's true. You're right about that. The, the disparity in terms of the, the pricing of an entree, generally speaking, rising over time, you're right. The 80s, 90s, it has not changed that much, certainly not proportionately to other goods and services like automobiles, for example, great example, real estate, all that stuff. 
So, so, you know, a lot of things need to happen to get us to a place where restaurants can afford to pay the customers are understanding. As I'll say when I had Gerard and we had a $15 minimum wage and we just had a service charge that it was a, a flat fee that was a percentage tacked onto the bill and all the employees made at least 15 an hour. And if they got cash tips or a, a true gratuity that was left at the end, they were able to keep that. But otherwise, I assumed the responsibility for paying my staff. They knew what their hours were. They knew exactly how much they were going to make. And if anything, they made more, but it was never less than what they thought they were going to make, you know. And I had great, I had great employee retention. And, you know, most of the people that were there were there from the day we opened until the day we closed. And, wow. you know, that's, that I think says something to um, the, the model because it is also uh, based in respect, which is, you know, I respect you enough to pay you and to consider all of these things. And it just built a much different relationship. Uh, with my employees than I've seen in most restaurants. Yeah, and I I agree with you. I think that's the right thing to do, right? Is to justly compensate employees for their time and to try to be as transparent as you possibly can be with them about, you know, the direction that the business is heading in and and kind of making them a part of I think where people frequently fail is that they think that by foreclosing people from certain information that somehow is a better process. Whereas yeah. it's the opposite, right? The more transparent you are with the individuals on your team, the more likely they are to stick it out, really roll up their sleeves and go to battle with you when the yeah. times get tough. And and we did to that point, we had an open book policy where in our weekly meetings, I brought our sales, our and you know, previous quarters. I brought our, you know, our utility bills. So I could say we're going through 500 gallons of water in breakfast and lunch, you know, just little things like these are all things that cost the business money. And right. if, if we are all more tuned in and more aware, and we did, we built a team that worked together as a whole. We bounced from front of house, back of house, kind of wherever something needed to be done, we all carried each other towards this one common goal. Um, it brought those walls down that I think are very easy to go up where you have the front and the back and it's like two different missions and you know they're they're never working together. They're working alongside each other but never together. Um, right. And that so that was a really important thing, opening all that up, laying it on the table and saying, you know, I'm not making all this money that you know, people think restaurant owners make profit margins aren't high. You know, I want to pay you guys fairly. This is where everything is going. And this is where we want to be. And, um, you know, it wasn't to stress them out or anything, but just to really be transparent. Um, I didn't ever want them to carry any of the weight of like, oh, this is all the financial obligations or whatever. But um, I think it did add just a layer of honesty and transparency. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I like the structure. Let's let's go back real quick so we don't get too lost in the weeds on the tip thing because this is this is a big thing that my friends and I always talk about when we're out to to dinner. Right. Is is like what's what's a solid tip and at what point? I will say this: it takes a lot 
for me to either reduce the tip from 20% or to no tip at all, which has only happened, I think, once, maybe twice in my entire restaurant going mm-hmm. career. And you really have to go out of your way to just flat out make it apparent that you, you're going to be rude to us as a server, which I never understand. Your, your whole purpose, and, and look, I know life happens and we should be sensitive to the fact that individuals have things going on outside of work, certainly. But as a server, that's, that's your moneymaker, right? Yeah. Is to be nice to people and to, to kind of make their experience pleasant within reason, within reason, certainly. So what, what to you being on the inside of the restaurant industry is a good tip? What's an appropriate tip? And at what point do you start dropping that percentage on someone if they're if they're being rude or whatever? What what does it take? Uh, so I'll have to say um, I might be an exception and maybe very biased. I've only ever worked in restaurants, <laughs> so uh, I'll say I never really tip below like twenty percent, no matter what. I am not saying people cannot give bad service or cannot be rude, but I've worked alongside too many servers or been in a position myself where uh, they get a call that someone just passed away or I had, you know, I, my dog died one morning, 615. I was on my way to work. I, the, the vet was across the street from the restaurant. Oh. I did that and I had to be there to open the restaurant and be ready for brunch. Right. And those are things that, you know, I had the ability at that point, you know, I was, I was in charge of, in that situation, but I've worked alongside so many people where their manager tells them like, you know, I need you. It's too bad. Or if you're sick, it it's you lose your job or you come in and work. So it's tough to, to know exactly what's going on and to say like, are they, you know, what kind of day are they having? Right. And I always try to put myself in that position, which tied onto the less than 20%. But um, to that point, I've had terrible service that is just, uh, a lack of concern or for for the experience and um i don't uh i don't like con- you know i don't think that's good for business um but just my kind of rule of thumb is i kind of do 20 and if it's great i do more and uh and then we frequent places that we know and love and kind of build a relationship with with the staff, and we are guilty of like going back to the same place over and over. Once we yeah, find a, sure. a, a, a place or a person that we really jive with, um, you know, we kind of end up becoming friends. And uh, but tipping stuff. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's the max you would tip percentage wise? Um, I mean, it totally depends if. Um, you know, it totally depends on the experience. Uh, You know, if I'm out at like a diner, say, and it was just like a really cheap breakfast that was 10 bucks, I'll I'll have no problem leaving a 20. Right. And of course, yeah, but that makes sense. Spending a couple hundred, uh, you know, 40% we've done if it's like a really great, like, 
again, it's tough because we get into, uh, you get into kind of a situation where when you really frequent a place and you take care of people, you set an expectation for yourself, right, um, right, which can right. be hard to keep up with. Uh, so it's gotta be a balance. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. You start tipping 40% every time you're walking in the door, they're yeah. wiping everything down yeah. say, right this way, Brian, right this way. <laughs> no, yeah. that's cool. Yeah. I, I, um, yeah, I agree with you. I, I really do try to tip a minimum of 20% for out of the same sort of logic and reasoning. Uh, the, the rare occasion that we didn't tip, uh, that I didn't leave a tip in general was again, I think only once, maybe, maybe twice. And it was because this person, the one time that I can remember, which is the only time that I can literally remember, we, it was a place that we frequented and this person had been rude on multiple occasions spanning, you know, several weeks. And again, I don't expect any crazy amount of service for the 20%, you know, just, you know, as long as you're doing what you're, yeah, the basics. Um, but they, this person unfortunately had been, had been kind of rude. And the funny thing was it pained me insanely to, to not leave a tip at all. But, um, but you know, my, my wife who at the time was not my wife, we were, we were just going out and, uh, we're sitting there. I mean, we must've deliberated the length of the entire meal, you know, what, what we're, what we're working on here. But, um, but I think that's the only time. And then pre-pandemic, right before the pandemic, we had gone out for for sort of a final meal a little over a year ago uh, at at the Couch Tomato in Maniunk, which is a, a good spot that we really like. And um, I mean, the meal wasn't insanely expensive, but we we uh, we tipped a hundred percent because we knew the pandemic was coming. And you know. It, just that thinking that every little yeah, bit helps. Yeah. I think it was a $60 meal and I left yeah. 120. So, um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I, I do find it interesting because going to Portugal in Portugal, generally speaking, gratuity is not a thing. It's just yeah, not yeah. a cultural thing. And, um, you know, even when family comes over, they always kind of say to us because it's kind of that like kitschy American thing that you're supposed to tip a certain percentage. Um, and so there's that dichotomy there, which is kind of interesting. But um, but yeah, I see your point. I, I, I think it is important to be, again, humanistic. We're, we're all in this together. Yeah, you, yeah. you should not feel in any way entitled just because you're out to dinner. That's a luxury. And these people, a lot of times, people who work in the restaurant industry are just working their way through to their next stop. And and some people make great careers out of it and, and are really fantastic yeah. uh, wait staff. Which so. I think is another reason that, you know, the kind of, I always say the professionalizing of the industry, because there are so many people, whether it's with intent or not, that it is their career and there's no reason we shouldn't have better standards of pay and even benefits or, you know, sick leave, maternity leave. These are all things where, you know, if you get too sick or if you get pregnant, your job isn't waiting for you or there, there's no there's no other option. So, um, you know, it is something I think uh, the professionalizing of the industry is something that needs to happen. Um, yeah. And yeah, with respect to to um, Gerard, 
what what eventually caused that to come to an end, if you don't mind me asking? You certainly can opt not to answer, but just out no, of curiosity, sure. because you seem to have had a great culture internally and and great policies with respect to your staff and to your team. So what ultimately kind of brought that to an end, uh, aside from the fact that you were working like 90 hours a week, which is enough to bring anything to an end? Well, that was a big part of it. Um, you know, it was the culture I built within the four walls of Gerard was, uh, it was great. And I, I'm very proud of that, but it also took so much out of me personally, like conceptually it's great, but there was only a single person behind making all of that happen. I had started the restaurant with a business partner who we were 50-50 investment and everything. And it takes a lot to get a brand new restaurant open. So uh, about a year in, he told me that he was done. It wasn't what he thought it was going to be. It was way too stressful. And he was out. He gave me two weeks notice to either buy him out or, or at least to get an agreement or make a decision on what I was going to do of either buy him out or we close and try to sell all of, you know, try to sell what's left of the business. Right. And I was like, well, I just borrowed all this money and we, you know, it's only been, it was only actually like 10 months. And I was like, this is, you know, we're still getting the business off the ground. And, but at that point we were working probably a hundred hours a week. Right. Uh, we lived above the restaurant. There were two apartments. We each had one and we literally never stopped working. And I, so I understand uh, why he felt that way, but it, just really left me in a, a position where I had to sell my condo and buy him out. And then, you know, over time, it kind of just the situation I was left in by him leaving financially made it really tough for me to do the things I, I needed to do to really get ahead. And um, I had, you know, we had built a great business in the years after he left but it got to a point where to get where I wanted to be and the work it would have required, it was just too much. I was so burnt out at that point. And I kind of just said like, you know, I'm grinding my gears and I got to just start over. I need a break. I need to step away from this. Uh, I had been hospitalized on two different occasions with uh, like, collapsed lung and uh, multiple other issues that were all stress-induced. And it was just very clear to me that I needed to make a change. And, you know, I, I wasn't giving myself personally the quality of life that I was trying to provide for everyone else. So, um, you know, I, I have to say after taking that time off afterwards and, you know, keeping all of that in mind with happy hour, um, we've been able to create something that is, uh, just much more beneficial to, 
to my like, quality of life. And, you know, we are able to carve out time to do things like this and, and, uh, Cozinha and, and other stuff. And, um, it's just been really great. Well, I think that's, that's a, a great story in a lot of ways. And, and, there are a lot of lessons embedded in that story, I think, for anyone who's listening, but particularly the big one I think to focus on is that often when life hands you lemons to borrow an overused uh, idiom, there there are ways to turn that around. There's a silver lining there, right? And, and there's there's some good that will eventually come from that. And you're only going to see that well down the road when you yeah, look back. Yeah, yeah, yeah cool. So pandemic huge issue for everyone in the restaurant industry in particular and in the hospitality space in general. It's it's going to reshift everything, at least temporarily. Hopefully, it'll create some long-term change in all of these industries that really needed it. Um, it, it it's exposed a lot of holes, a lot of gaps for industries, for organizations in particular, for businesses. A lot of businesses have closed, unfortunately. How did you weather the storm through the pandemic. And on the back end of that, what's your advice for anyone else who's listening that's kind of struggling to keep things going? So um, a, a big part of it was uh, our business model kind of allowed us the flexibility that we needed to pivot so many times to make it through COVID, which, you know, the, the COVID pivot is uh, was kind of the the term in our kitchen, we share a kitchen with multiple other businesses. And, you know, every week, we were all trying to come up with new ways, new things to reach people. Um, rules were changing every week, restrictions. So, you know, the fact that we didn't have a brick and mortar and we were just booking events rather than, you know, having that physical presence on a street somewhere really allowed us to kind of take the break and ride it. We rode out a couple of weeks in the beginning of March and, and Brian and I were just getting bored and we were like, all right, we're going to just start making food and we'll drop it off. We were doing a three course like date night dinner. And, uh, we were in Jersey, the main line. I mean, we were like, whoever wants it, we'll drop it off. We were just happy to get out of the house. So right, right. Um, then every week we were doing a new menu. And um, as you know, as we got into summer, people got a little more lax. So we did a couple like backyard small things where uh you, you know, dinner where they sat out back or a small little even drop-offs. Um, people were having uh maybe like eight, 10 person things in their backyard or at the shore, um, which carried us for a little while. And then, you know, the, the next wave came and uh, we focused back on the drop off going into holiday season in, the, you know, our method was to kind of plan a couple months out and just have everything lined up since the holidays are like one right after another. We had our drop off, Thanksgiving feast, uh, we did, uh, we had our holiday catering menu for, you know, Christmas and New Year's. And we did an online store for a bunch of different cookies, hot sauces, different things that were able to ship nationwide. 
we were just trying to figure out ways to reach whoever we could. And we know we have, you know, friends and family all over. And so we kind of tapped into that and we did like curated cookie trays and, uh, people, uh, gifted a lot of them. And, um, that has kind of launched this other third brand that I was talking about where, you know, we're working on, uh, expanding that line of products and having that be, uh, you know, another line of things that's here to stay. Um, so, you know, it was really just how, what do we need to do to reach people right now? If it's bring food to them, great. If it's, you know, we can only serve you outside, we'll do it. Um, it was really just the remaining as flexible as we could. Um, we had to keep it lean, uh, but, uh, you know, just a good attitude and, you know, flexibility and, uh, it was, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's no, that's well said. That's exactly what what you need to do, right? You just kind of need to sometimes knuckle under and it's stressful and it's exhausting, but you just got to keep pushing forward. That's that's the only way to do it. What's the third business business concept that you're currently working on if you can share? Sure. Uh you can keep an eye out. It's going to be um up, like pantry staples. We'll have uh sauces, seasonings, uh, so we'll have a line of like pasta sauces, hot sauces, uh, pickles. We'll also, you know, we'll bring the cookies back and, uh, we'll, we're going to be focusing on more retail to start. Um, again, going to start small with one focus and then we'll grow from there. But, um, you know, that is all shelf stable stuff. So it's, um, you know, it's something that you can pick up, keep in your cabinet for when you need, uh, a quick dinner or something to help just elevate whatever you're already making or just a great snack. Um, you know, we want to kind of always be in your kitchen. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I love it. Are you working with a co-packer or, or how did you start developing this line of pantry staples? So we started, we were just, um, you know, packaging everything ourselves between Uline and Avery labels that we were printing ourselves. But um, we are working with a designer now for packaging and um, really um, getting the brand like really carved out and, and, and defined. So um, that in the next couple months, we're going to be ready to fully launch, but we're taking our time. <laughs> And uh, we're excited. That's awesome. Yeah. So we'll keep a lookout for that. Follow Happy Hour Hospitality on Instagram and at Cuzinha, C-O-Z-I-N-H-A, Philly uh, on Instagram as well. And Happy Hour Hospitality is happyhourhospitality.com, right? Yeah. That's uh, any other way to reach out to you or that people, other accounts that people should follow? Um, I think, you know, we, we pretty much our Instagram is our number one. Uh, we keep it simple with the photos and, uh, and our website has every way to reach us. So cool. Yeah. Awesome. Bri, thanks so much for your time Thank today. You, uh, I'll make sure to go, uh, check out what's going on on Instagram and I'll be ordering some food from you very soon. All right. Great. Thank thanks, you so Bri. much. Yeah. Have easy. a good one. You, you too. too.